0: Well, amen. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 this morning. Gospel of Mark chapter 1. Today we begin our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this sermon will be a bit unusual uh, from our norm. So if you are visiting today, normally we take uh, the Bible verse by verse and go through a section of Scripture. Uh, This morning, uh, I'm going to do a bit more teaching than normal and give you some information that will help you as you start into a study of the Gospel of Mark. Perhaps this week, if you have not already done so, you can begin reading through the Gospel of Mark. Only 16 chapters should take you really less than an hour to read through the whole book, Uh, but we would encourage you to start reading through it chapter by chapter. And so what I envision doing today is giving you a bit of a what I sometimes call a front porch to get into the door. Uh, you know, we could just start in Mark 1, verse 1, and just kind of climb up in the front door and get going into the house. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to give you a, a front porch and steps to get in there to make it a little bit more uh, accessible for us as we get in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, one of the young men uh, that I read the sermon to last night said, hey, I actually might be doing more than that. I might be like baking fresh bread inside of the house and alluring you in as well. Uh, however, uh, I think actually a better illustration would be we're going to let the content of Mark's gospel be the thing that allures you as we uh, look at it here together today. So it's with much joy that I begin uh, this study of Mark's gospel with you today. Uh, you know, Being a relatively uh, young, no, new uh, senior pastor, I haven't really had the privilege of working the whole way through a gospel yet. And so... I've been looking forward to doing this uh, for about 20 years or so, Uh, so I'll try to contain my excitement. Um, I pray that God will greatly use this in our church. And I want to give you just a few reasons uh, before we start. There is a handout in the bulletin if you'd like to take notes that way. But a few reasons why I look forward to studying Mark's gospel with you before we get into the introduction itself. First, I look forward to studying Mark's gospel because... This is a compact book. Uh, The Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel by far, and as I took advice from seasoned pastors who'd preached through many of the gospels before, uh, several of them said, you know, you need to start with Mark's gospel. It's shorter, it's brief, and uh, hopefully the series is brief as well. Um, This gospel is a fast-paced account of the life of Christ. One of the things you'll notice in the gospel is that the word immediately in the English translations is repeated often. That's the way Mark usually transitions from one story in the gospel in the life of Christ to another. The word immediately is found 42 times in the gospel. In some of your translations, it might be translated straightway or forthwith, or uh, in the King James occasionally, it's the the old word anon. Uh, But it's, it's a quick transition, and Mark uses it often. Look in your Bible at Mark 1. Verse 10, it says, And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And so you see there's a transition. There are two transitions in the matter of three verses for Mark's gospel. Mark has Jesus constantly on the move. He's healing people, then exercising demons, then he's performing other miracles. Or he's confronting opponents and instructing disciples. One uh, scholar said that Mark does not even have time for Jesus' birth narrative. He says it this way. He says, Jesus just arrives on the scene fully grown of indeterminate age from Nazareth to be baptized by John in the Jordan. Sometimes when you're reading through a book, don't you wish that the author would just get to the point? Ever read a book or been, uh, better yet, have you ever been assigned a book in a class that just seemed to go on and on and on? I can't tell you how many books I have tried to read in that case. And it seems like the author just keeps repeating himself. Well, sometimes we say, you know, don't beat around the bush, just get to the point. Well, that's what Mark does. His gospel is fast-paced. Secondly, I look forward to this because although it's short, Mark's style is vivid. He's a very good writer, of course, being led by the Spirit of God. Although this is a short gospel, Mark writes with polish and vivid detail. I was just reading through the first few chapters and looking for this again, and I noticed that in, in chapters one and two, the way he describes things are very, very vivid. He he at one point is talking about Jesus being in the wilderness, and he says that he is surrounded by wild beasts in the wilderness. Another time, uh, when Jesus is healing Simon's, Simon's mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, Jesus does not merely touch her. He could just, uh, Mark could just say he touched her, but it says that he tenderly took her by the hand to heal her. Later that same evening, Mark is describing uh, a situation that's occurring in chapter 2, where he says that the whole town gathers at the door of the house to see Jesus. And then finally, to the sea, later on in the book, Jesus will say, he could, Jesus could have just said, stop it. But Jesus says, peace or hush, be still. Mark is a very vivid writer, and this gospel will be filled with those details. I think third, the, the, the third reason why I'm looking forward to studying this gospel is because in it, we will learn more about Jesus. I admit to you this morning that I love preaching from the Pauline epistles, from Paul's epistles. Uh, And sometimes I can be a little out of balance in that. Um, For years and years and years, I taught the Pauline epistles. I taught every one of them in different details, different ways, and and so uh, I remember one day my grandfather, my then uh, unsaved grandfather, coming to me. He had heard me preach four or five times at our church back home in Climber, and he said, "You know, Brent, you should have just called one of your sons, Paul, because you talk about him all the time." Yeah, I love speaking about Paul and Paul's epistles. Um, however, while I enjoy studying Paul, I know that there's no greater no greater person to know than Jesus. And so it's my prayer that we will leave here every week for the next several months declaring that Jesus has been too much for us again. This is too great for us even to fully comprehend or understand. And so it's my prayer in the next few months that Jesus will be greatly glorified in our study of Mark's gospel. Having said all this, this morning I want to do two introductory studies with you to help you um, get into the gospel of Mark this week. Uh, There's a lot you could do, uh, but we'll just look at these two things. First of all, I want to talk with you about the author of the book. If we're going to understand the gospel of Mark, we need to look at its author. And I think looking at the author will give us perspective on the whole book. Again, I said there are three statements I want to make regarding the author, and in your notes, uh, I'll try to make clear where you can fill in the blanks. First statement I'll make is that the author of this gospel is John Mark, is John Mark. Having said that, I admit that nowhere in the gospel of Mark do we find any information about the actual author of this book. Having said that, there's no book that is a matter of fewer disputes regarding who wrote it among scholars than Mark's gospel. Almost all of church history claims that the book was written by a man named John Mark. One scholar said it this way, he says, the evidence of the tradition supporting Mark and authorship can be described in general as early, universal, and extensive. Okay, so what he is saying is everyone who wrote in the first few uh, hundred years of the history of the church claimed that John Mark was the author. I'll give you a few examples of this. Clement of Alexandria in about 190 AD wrote this. He said, Those that contain the genealogies were first written. He's describing the Gospels. He said, those who have the genealogies were first written. That would be which Gospels? Matthew and Luke. He said, uh, then Mark wrote his Gospel from matter preached by Peter. And then John, last of all, wrote a spiritual Gospel. So there in 190 AD, this church father writes uh, over 100 years after the life of Christ and says that John Mark wrote this gospel. Well, backtracking a little bit, getting a little closer to Jesus, we go to 180 AD and a church father by the name of Irenaeus. He said, after their departure, Mark, the the disciple and interpreter of Peter, did also hand down to us in writing what had been preached by Peter. Okay, so again, uh, Papias is saying, uh, or Irenaeus is saying, that John Mark wrote this book. Well going back a little further to 120 A.D., getting closer to the life of Christ, Papias wrote this. He said, "Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote accurately all that he remembered of the things that were, that were either said or done by Christ." The earliest testimony to the Markan authorship of John, uh, the John Mark authorship of the Gospel of Mark, though, comes from the heading in the Greek New Testament. The heading in the Greek New Testament is not inspired. It was written very early on in the first century, however. And the heading in the Greek Testament reads this way in English, the gospel according to Mark. And so it seems relatively certain then that John Mark wrote this gospel. But one of the things I want to ask us as we're studying the the, the scriptures here is, what do we know then about this person, John Mark, from the scriptures? Well, as we go to the scriptures themselves, we can learn a few things about John Mark. First, we learned that John is his Hebrew name and Mark is his Roman name, and that actually might help you learn a little bit more about the intent of this book, because it says the gospel according to Mark, using his Roman name. I think this gospel was originally given to Roman believers. I'll talk more about that in a second. What else do we know about John Mark from the New Testament? Well, we know that he was not an eyewitness of the events of Christ. John Mark did not live and walk with Jesus. However, he was a close friend and traveled with at least three of the apostles. He traveled with Barnabas, a relative of his. He also traveled with Paul the apostle on on his first missionary journey. And there were times in his life, many times in his life, uh, when he traveled with Peter, Peter, who would have walked and talked with Jesus. And so no doubt Mark's interaction with those apostles would help him as he would write this gospel. Well, John Mark is mentioned in the scripture eight times. I invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 12 for a moment, and we'll look at a few of the times when John Mark is actually mentioned in the scriptures. There are several of them in a cluster here in the book of Acts. The first mention of John Mark in the the actual scriptures itself is Acts 12 and verse 12. And I invite you to look at that text with me, Acts 12 and verse 12. It says, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying." Okay, so what we find out about John Mark in this text is he's the son of a woman by the name of Mary. Mary is a woman of some means who lived in Jerusalem. And Mary's house became a meeting place for some early Christians, including a group of Christians who are gathering here to pray for the release of Simon Peter. The second mention of him is just a little bit later down in the text. Look at Acts 12, 25. And Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The second mention of him is during Paul's first missionary journey. And in this text, we find out that Mark is with Paul and Barnabas as a traveling partner in their first journey. The third occurrence is probably just across the page in your Bible, Acts 13 and verse 5 where the scriptures say when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews and they had John to assist them. So Paul and Barnabas are ministering on this first missionary journey and they've got an assistant or a minister helping them whose name is John, John Mark. But then go down in your Bibles to Acts 13 and verse 13, where we learn something significant about John Mark in the New Testament. Acts 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on. We'll just quit reading here. Here we find out that John Mark was a deserter. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas in the city, and he went back to his previous life. Now turn the page in your Bible, just two chapters to Acts 15, and we'll see that the next mention of John Mark produces a great division between two apostles. Look at Acts 15, verse 37. Acts 15, verse 37. It says, Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had 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 not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. So over the defection of John Mark, Paul and Barnabas have a dispute. Paul does not trust him anymore because John Mark had withdrawn from them in in their first missionary journey. As Paul begins his second missionary journey, he has no place John Mark. Well, some years later, you could read more about John Mark in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13. We won't turn there and look at that, but there we learn that John Mark is is at that point in Rome with Simon Peter, so he's spending some time with Simon Peter. Again, another text we won't turn to is Colossians 4 in verse 10, where we find out not only was uh, was John Mark with Peter in Rome, but he was with Paul in Rome, Colossians 4:10. But there is one last text chronologically, the last mention of John Mark that I'd like for you to read with me, turn to 2 Timothy four and verse 11. 2 Timothy four and verse 11. Okay, so we're just try- trying to find out a little bit more about the author of this book, and I think I'll be able to make a significant point about him being the author here in a moment. Second Timothy four and verse 11. Paul says in this book, near the end of Paul's own life, he says, "Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry." Here John, or, uh, Peter, or, sorry, Paul, is writing to Timothy, and he tells Timothy to bring John Mark with him, because John Mark is now, at least at this point, again, profitable for Paul and his ministry. You know, John Mark is a great study in what God can do with one who fails or who quits, but then decides to again serve the Lord with all of his heart. Not only was Mark profitable again to the Apostle Paul, but God used John Mark to write this gospel, the gospel of Mark, which stresses the need for believers to have fortitude and endurance when facing persecution. In other words, John Mark is an unlikely author for this book. Uh, But God is a forbearing God of second chances. Aren't you glad that God forgives and that he continues to use us even amidst our own weakness, well, the second statement I want to make, and you can go back to mark chapter one again. The second statement I want to make about the author of the book is uh, that John Mark is connected in some way to Peter in the production of this book. Uh, this study is, is is valuable as well. if you, If you noticed when we were going through the church uh, fathers and reading through some of that information, Many of them connected John Mark and Simon Peter in the the production of this book. Actually, most early tradition claims that John Mark penned Peter's memoirs or memories of the life of Christ, and that they worked together in producing this gospel. I mean, independently of each other, several church fathers say this, Papias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Hippolytus, Tertullian, Origen, Eusebius, Jerome. They all claim a tie between Peter and Mark in the production of this gospel. And while there are different ideas about how this gospel came to be written, I I really like the view of a New Testament scholar by the name of David Allen Black, who suggests that the gospel of Mark was originally given in Rome in spoken form through the teaching and preaching of Simon Peter. I mean, could you imagine for a moment? I think it's good for us to consider that there was a time in the history of the world when there was no gospel of Mark. But some historic events led up to the place where the gospel would be produced. Well, what David Allen Black says is that one day near the end of Peter's life, Peter decides to give an extended series on the life of Christ, to teach through the life of Christ. Can you imagine how popular that would be? I mean, it's been over 30 years since Jesus lived on the earth, but Simon Peter, a a disciple who knew him perhaps better than, than most other people, decides to give an oral presentation of the life of Christ in Rome. And so what we do know is that one of of the people who were there who heard him give this presentation was a young man by the name of John Mark. And so what David Allen Black suggests is that John Mark actually carefully writes down the memories of Simon Peter about the life of Christ. He puts them in written form for the believers in the city of Rome. And that's how we got our first copy of the Gospel of Mark. Now in the scriptures themselves, we know that Peter calls Mark his spiritual son in 1 Peter. They had a very close relationship. One of those texts we didn't read, Simon Peter is calling John Mark his spiritual son in the gospel. Other clues in the gospel of Mark, I think, help us here as well, or might suggest a very close connection between Mark and Peter in in this book. So, for instance, in the gospel of Mark, we are given more details about Peter's home than you can find anywhere else in Scripture. More details about Peter's home than anywhere else. We're also given more details about Peter's mother-in-law than anywhere else in the New Testament, including her name and description of her. In Mark's Gospel, he recalls that it was Peter who drew the Lord's attention to the withered fig tree. And, And perhaps one of the most interesting things to me, or one of the most fascinating things, is what you don't find in the Gospel of Mark, and that is, you don't find one of Peter's greatest failures when uh, he walks on the water but then doesn't have enough faith and he falls in only to be rescued by Jesus. And so what I'm suggesting then is that it is likely that the gospel of Mark is a summary of the teaching of Peter on the life of Christ. And again, if Peter is connected with the production of this gospel, that will be about endurance in suffering. This is another amazing tribute to God's ability to use imperfect human beings to accomplish his will. And Pastor James just read a text here about Simon Peter giving advice about how to endure suffering for righteous causes. And he himself, at a very important point in his life, did not do so successfully. I mean, the only two or three more unlikely candidates to write a gospel about enduring suffering for the cause of Christ might be Judas Iscariot or Ananias and Sapphira or someone like that. But God in his sovereign plan uses John Mark and I believe Simon Peter to produce this book. Well, let me make one other statement about the authorship of this book. And that is John Mark writes this gospel to Roman believers, Roman believers. Now, one way you can fi- find out the Roman nature of this book is to, st- to see that the book both starts and ends with people identifying Jesus as the Son of God. matter of fact, in your notes, I've given you a little chart there with all of the references to Jesus as being the Son of God, a major theme in Mark's Gospel. We see that it starts out in Mark chapter one, verse one. It starts with the author himself, John Mark declaring the beginnings of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Son of God. So the gospel starts out with John Mark claiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And throughout the book, many different beings and people attribute or uh, give testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. God Himself declares it, Jesus declares it, demons know this, and they declare that this is the Son of God. But at the very end of the gospel, in Mark 15 and verse 39, there's a powerful, powerful testimony to the fact that Jesus is God's son given by the Roman centurion. And this is at the climax of the gospel. Of its Roman origins, one scholar said this. He said, the evangelist John Mark frames his narratives in terms of Jesus being the son of God in the opening verse and in the climatic reference in 1539 featuring the Roman centurion." He said, this is no coincidence since Mark's audience was the church in Rome. This Roman centurion utters the final reference to Jesus as the son of God in the gospel. And so as we go throughout the gospel of Mark, uh, I'm going to try to show you time and time again where you can see a Roman influence on this gospel. For now, at the beginning of our study, I'll just suggest this. I suggest that John Mark wrote this gospel to encourage Christians who were enduring suffering under the hand of Roman authorities in around 67 to 69 AD. Now, if you don't know much about history, I won't even get into that. You just know, just mark this down. This is a really difficult time to be a Christian in Rome. This is about 10 years after Paul writes Romans. And at this point, there are two apostles who are just about ready to die in Rome. Simon Peter himself will be killed in Rome for his testimony for faith in Jesus Christ, along with Paul the apostle. And so what I want to suggest to you is that the original intent or purpose of the gospel of Mark was written for Roman believers who were going through great suffering. And so as you're trying to, you know, gather all this stuff that I've said about authorship, the point I want to make is this. The gospel of Mark is not as much of an evangelistic tract to help people understand the core essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are other gospels that do that well, like the gospel of John. You know, from time to time, we talk about doing a 21-day journey to understand the gospel of John, read a chapter at a time to go through this so you understand who Jesus is. At the end of John's gospel, he tells us the exact purpose for the gospel. He says, these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you might have life through his name. The Gospel of John is written for, uh, or one of its good purposes, is for unbelievers to understand who Jesus is. The Gospel of Mark is written for believers. It's less an even evangelistic tract. It's more a discipleship manual for believers who are going through suffering and trial. And I'm going to return to that point in just a moment, the Gospel of Mark will be really helpful for us as believers as we consider trial. Well, there's one other introductory study I want to do with my last six or seven minutes here, and that is I want to look at the main message of the book. To understand the main message of this book, there are several places I could go. Uh, however, what I'm going to do is I want to go right to the heart or the center of the book and look with you at Mark chapter 8, 9, and 10. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And for the rest of our time, we'll be in these texts. In Mark 8, 9, and 10, there is a threefold pattern repeated for emphasis by Mark in his gospel as he's writing it, so that whoever reads this book will understand a key, key idea concerning Christ and being a follower of his. And so this threefold pattern is found in Mark 8, it's found again in Mark 9, and it's found Finally, in Mark 10, the threefold pattern goes this way. Jesus will start by predicting his own death in each one of these texts. Many of the the writers that I read in the last several weeks that talk about the gospel of Mark describe Jesus as the suffering Messiah, or suffering servant. Perhaps you've heard that before. He's the suffering servant. Well, the first part of this pattern is Jesus predicting his own death. We're going to see that in these texts. After that, the disciples fail. The disciples fail fail. And then finally, Jesus reminds them of the true cost of discipleship. And uh, so what I would like to do is I would just like to read these texts with you and show you these, this threefold pattern that repeats itself three times. Look at Mark 8 verse 31. if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the Holy Spirit angels. And so in this text, I think you can see this pattern. First of all, Jesus predicts his own death right at the beginning of this passage. That's what verse 31 is about. He says he's going to suffer many things, be rejected by the chief priests and elders and scribes, and then be killed. After that, though, the second part of the pattern is found where the disciples fail. Perhaps you saw this in your Bible, look down in your Bible, see if you can see it there. And in the middle of verse 32, we have the failure of one of the disciples, Simon Peter, who after Jesus explains he's going to die, takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. That leads to the third part of the pattern, which is really the, the final part of this text, starting in verse 34, in the middle of that verse, and the whole way through the end, Jesus reminds the disciples of the true cost of being a follower of his. He says things like, if you are going to follow me, you will have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, okay? So you see what we did there. We read this chapter, we saw this threefold pattern. Now, I wanna look at it again in Mark 9, verse 30. So turn over there in your Bible, Mark 9, 30 through 37. And as a matter of fact, if you mark in your Bible, you might consider marking these different colors to remind yourself of this pattern right in the center of Mark's gospel. Mark 9 and verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But... and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives uh, not me, but him who sent me. Again, if you look closely at this text, I think you can see this threefold pattern. When in the middle of verse 31, Jesus predicts his own death. He says, they're going to come and they're going to kill him. That, of course, is followed by failure, though. It's like a big big red X right after, you know, Jesus is pouring his heart out to the disciples saying, they're going to come and kill me. But then we find out their first failure is they don't understand what he's talking about, but they refuse to ask it. And if that failure wasn't bad enough, you look a little bit farther down in verse 34 in your Bible, and you see that Jesus asked them what they're talking about, but they kept silent about it because they were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest in the kingdom. Okay, do you get this? Like Jesus is saying, they're gonna come and they're gonna kill me and the disciples could care less about that. They don't understand it, but they're talking about which one of them is the greatest. Okay, so you just write the word failure. Failure in your Bible right after that. That leads to Jesus again reminding them of the true cost of being a follower of his. If anyone would be first, disciples, if you want to be first, greatest in the kingdom, you, you must be last of all and servant of all. You must be last of all and servant of all. You must serve all other people. Let's look at one other text, Mark 10, verse 32 through 45. We'll look at this pattern one more time, then I'll wrap up our introductory sermon here. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, so in this text, let's see the threefold pattern again. You see Jesus predicting his death starting in verse 33. And this is perhaps the most graphic description he gives to them. It's like, you know, if the disciples didn't get it before this point, they would have to be absolutely clueless not to understand that Jesus is just about ready to die. They're going to deliver him over. They're going to condemn him. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. But then we're looking for the failure of the disciples, and we see it all throughout this text again, starting in verse 35. Verse 35. The disciples, after Jesus say that says this, respond by saying, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus, in a very gracious way, responds to that failure, and he asks them a question. He says, well, if you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want those special seats, are, are you able to be baptized with the same baptism? I'm going to be baptized or drink the same cup. I think Jesus is describing the fact of his own death. James and John, are you you willing to die like I'm going to die? I don't know if they understand the question or not, but their their statement I translate as well as another failure. We are able. We're able. And then Jesus confirms with them, you will indeed die in that way. You will indeed die a martyr's death. Well, then you think you're, you're about through the text and the disciples' failure is over. But verse 41, I see as another failure, the disciples'. It says, when the 10 heard the question that James and John had asked, it says, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, we don't have time to go to the other Gospels, but that word indignant, basically, in, in my perspective, from the other, other Gospels, I believe means that they became filled with, uh, uh, with greed or Uh, filled with, oh, the right word is envy, filled with envy. So instead of the other 10 disciples saying, I can't believe how audacious it would be for James and John to ask that insensitive question. I mean, Jesus just said he's gonna die and they're asking about having the best seats. Actually, they're filled with envy, perhaps wishing they had asked that question. That leads to Jesus again reminding them of the true cost of being a follower of his. You will be servant of all, slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, we have looked at a pattern this morning. This is how we're going to close. Three-fold pattern, three times in Mark's gospel. This pattern is like three dots that begin to form a line. And the question I want to ask you is, why does Mark do this? Why does he repeat this threefold pattern three times in the heart of his gospel? Of course, he's emphasizing something, but what is his main point? I want to suggest that his main point, first of all, was to declare the sufferings of Christ. I mean, again, Jesus is the suffering servant. He just kept serving and serving and serving mankind, and he would do so to the point of death. But perhaps the even greater reason for Mark to do this, to give this threefold pattern where Jesus predicts his death, the disciples fail, and then he reminds them of the true cost of being a follower of his is to challenge believers to follow the example of Jesus Christ. In other words, Mark is writing to Roman believers who are currently enduring suffering, great suffering for the Christian faith. And these believers needed to be reminded of what it costs to be a follower of Jesus. So the big point in this introduction I'm trying to make to you this morning is that this gospel is more than a book about Jesus. It's a book about being a follower of Jesus. And so as we read through it, as we look at it, and as we highlight different characteristics of our great Lord and Savior, part of Mark's core mission is this, is what it will look like for those who follow the suffering servant. So the theme of the book that I'm gonna take with you as we go through this is following the suffering servant. As a pastor, I occasionally hear people, Christian people, describe how difficult it is to be a Christian. I've heard statements like this. I don't want to be a missionary because I'm comfortable right where I am. I like my life. I like my comfort. I like what's around me. Or why would I go on a mission trip? Well, because being Jesus' disciple means that you follow his selfless example of service for the glory of God. I mean, it's not just that you would believe in Jesus and then you can live your life any way you want. No, Mark's gospel will remedy that. It's not an easy believism. It's not just believing Jesus, but you will need to follow him if you're gonna be his disciple, even through the midst of suffering and persecution. Or we say things like, I just can't witness because it's too hard. It's too embarrassing. So this book says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed at his coming. In Mark chapter 8, right, the heart of the gospel. You see, you cannot just be a believer who believes and gets in, but then refuses to tell other people about the son or else the son will be ashamed of you. You must follow Jesus' example. Or we say, why should, I go volu- why should I volunteer to go last in something or to have the worst seat in some location or to stand while others sit? So this book says, if you're going to follow Christ, if you would be first in his kingdom, then you must be last of all and servant of all. For following Jesus means that we follow a suffering servant. So I'm greatly concerned. For many professing believers in Jesus Christ, who view their their own present life as less than sacrificial service for the glory of God. We just can't believe and coast, but this book will show us to be a disciple of Jesus, you must follow his suffering example. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the privilege of working through this book I pray, Lord, that over the course of the next several weeks and months, we would learn more about it. Lord, as I've attempted to just summarize who the author of the book is and what his message is, I pray that believers would be excited to read this book, to learn more about their Savior Jesus, but to learn more as well of what it takes to be a follower of his And Father, if there's a young person, middle-aged or older person in this room who says they're a believer but refuses to do much sacrifice for the name of Christ, I pray this gospel would awaken them, would stir them, to show them that all true Christians, all genuine believers, gladly embrace sacrifice and suffering for the cause of Christ, to follow his example. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us these lessons over the course of the next several months. In Jesus' name, amen.